0: Welcome to The Mariner with me, Chris Stammel major And welcome to the end of the story of me sailing around the world with the Velux Five Oceans race. Last podcast, we talked all about the moon. I thought that was a little bit different. I uh, started talking about something scientific and start to give you an idea that maybe something more to me than just going out on a boat and sailing and hanging out. But uh, ultimately, I guess that's pretty much what I am. So we have to finish the story of sailing solo around the world. So this story, if you haven't picked up on the other episodes, is embedded into the first um, 15 of these podcasts. And it's me doing the Velux Five Oceans race, which used to be the BOC, Around Alone. Um, It was the last edition of the race. It set off in 2010 and we sailed uh, over the new year into 2011, it was about a nine month thing in, in total. And uh, yeah, if you go back to the very beginning of these podcasts, I actually set off on that race having literally just got back from sailing around the world doing the Clipper race. So by this point in the story, uh, I am getting like a little bit tired, (laughs) I guess. You know, it had been a long one. Um, As you've heard, you know, issues with uh, learning to sail the boats and damage in the Southern Ocean and having to fix the water maker and having to fix my own teeth at sea and all the rest of it. And by the time we got to Charleston in uh, the Carolinas there, it was time for... It was kind of time for the adventure to be coming to a close. And it was. And that was the great thing. Um, I had a very tricky time emotionally doing this race because I was dealing with a lot of stuff at home, not least... Uh, My father, being very ill with brain cancer, he had sort of plateaued by this time, so there was an opportunity to relax about that a little bit. I had been through the very worst of my uh, learning, you know, trying to get my head around driving an Open 60, which I'd never done before. By this point in the race, it probably sailed 32, maybe 33,000 miles on the Open 60 solo, so I was pretty happy with how that worked. And it was time to kind of recognize that this story is going to come to a close. And how do I feel about that? And am I going to go out in a blaze of glory, or am I going to be at the back again? Well, clearly, I wanted to do as well as I possibly could. You know, there's no no doubt there that I wanted to um, be as competitive as possible. But it had been an uphill battle. Um, the thing I'd always been struggling with with this race was. The fact that I I only had some of the sails I really needed to make the boat go fast. Like, there's no two ways about it. I had a very good set of fore and aft sails, jib, solent, uh, mainsail. And I knew how to propel the boat along very quickly with that. And my code sails, my code five, my code six. So I was very suited to high wind situations and reaching at like 110, 120 Uh, true wind angle, after it got deeper than that, it was problematic for me. So what I needed was for the final leg from Charleston, from basically the southern edge of the continental USA, not quite into Florida, but we're talking from that, that lower sort of panhandle area if you're not aware of the geography, and we're gonna arc up and over the Atlantic and into La Rochelle, which is on the western side of uh, France, uh, in the back of the Bay of Biscay there. So this was going to be a very, very standard transatlantic crossing. Um, this is the width that you want to do if you want to say you've done the Atlantic. It's got to be coast to coast <laughs> not all this messing around going to Bermuda. There's still 500 miles to go. No, this was going to be a case of do the very best I could with an event uh, or, or a part of an event which was about, I hoped, to give me the very best conditions for me and for for my boat spartan so i had taken a little trip out to hong kong which was uh i was i was hoping that uh, after the race i would go and live back in hong kong and that is indeed what happened so it was an opportunity to see the the lay of the land but it was also an opportunity to get back to my roots a little bit that's where i'd sort of got into sailing in the out or at the outward bound school in hong kong working on g feng she was no longer there anymore but the spirit of outward bound hong kong a 67 foot challenge yacht, which I had really cut my teeth on as a sailor. She was there, and I got to hang out. If you don't know Hong Kong, it does have the most amazing array of beautiful islands and white sand beaches and Wilderness areas, and actually 43% of Hong Kong is national parks. They never, ever advertise that. They always show the gambling. They always show the shopping. They always show the harbor and the skyline. But actually, once you live in Hong Kong, you have any experience of that amazing place, you realize that it also has this incredible nature side to it, and that was a fantastic opportunity to recharge in that environment, which I'd come to love and adore when I'd worked for the Outward Bound School. So, coming back to Charleston, I definitely understood the lay of the land in terms of my personal life going forwards, and I had a clear objective of what I needed to do, which was focus on this event and put everything else external to it, totally to one side, and enjoy being on the boat, for the sake of being on the boat and for the sake of the adventure and the challenge and the thrill of having the opportunity to drive this incredible boat. So Charleston was very, very good to us. It was the home port of Brad Van Loo, who at this point, I think he had already mathematically won the event. If he hadn't, it was pretty obvious (laughs) <laughs> what was going to happen next like I talked about this a little bit before I had so much respect for the other people that I was racing against in that event and I I got so much input from all of them from from Derek from uh, Gutek and from Brad, uh, but Brad certainly was a great friend to me and so were his uh, Prepper the people who prepped his boat and what interestingly one of them called JC a French guy a French legend in preparaturing. Um, he knew my boat, or at least the sister ship of my boat, very, very well. He had been a preparateur for Mike Golding when Mike Golding had done his Group Four uh, Around the World campaign. And it was exactly the same hull, and exactly the same mast, and exactly the same deck spreader arrangement. And um, <laughs> I had very quickly worked out that if I got him a bit drunk and started talking about the boat, because it was kind of a tipping point in his life where he moved into. Doing offshore sailing, he would get very wistful and in a thick um uh French accent would start revealing <laughs> all of the <laughs> all of the performance things that I needed to know. And I can remember being at a party with uh, Brad and I was you know I was talking to JC and getting, he's like, oh yeah, if you oversheet on the trinket and then set the headsaw to this angle and oh then she's uh, you know 120 uh True wind angle, and she's doing 20, 21. And Brad literally came over and grabbed him by the shoulder and said, don't tell him anymore. He's fast enough already. (laughs) And I think think he did it for two reasons. I think, A, clearly, okay, JC, stop telling this guy who's a competitor anymore about how to push his boat quickly. But it was also a kind of breakthrough moment where I realized, like, he really was on my side. What he was doing was giving me a... Uh, An oblique compliment that uh, I was I was quick enough now and I didn't need (laughs) any more pointers from JC So I had little things like that were kind of propping me up and, and giving me lots of confidence And Charleston as a host port was absolutely phenomenal like they they really made us feel so welcome They got so much experience of putting on maritime events and um, it's a beautiful uh, situation there uh, d- down by the river and this huge bridge that goes over the top. Actually, <laughs> whenever I see a picture of that bridge, I'm always reminded of a story which taught me a very important lesson about aluminum uh, aluminium, aluminium uh, fortress race anchors. Like if you've got one of those on your boat or you've ever seen them in the chandlery, it's a big Danforth pattern um, uh Anchor, okay, no no, no complication there. The Danforth pattern with the big, wide flukes has been around for a very long time. It can have very good holding in uh, hard sand bottoms and mud if it can get its blades in. Um, it's got all sorts of characteristics, but into this mix, we have to throw the fact that the Fortress Danforth pattern anchor is made of this very, very light metal, and it's brilliant for race boats. And I've actually seen the most comedic race boat application I've ever seen was um, the Danforth anchor, like stashed, as you might expect supposedly like ready to go, you know, in a bag, still needs to be put back together. But then when I put my hand on the chain that was next to it, which was like a white plastic covered chain, I realized that it wasn't white plastic covered chain. It was a white plastic chain i.e. like like the ones you get outside of the pub where they're trying to like cordon off the beer garden area like this race boat had well it was breaking the rules but it had clearly taken weight saving to the ultimate level they had this uh, aluminum anchor and they had white plastic chain to attach it to and no doubt shoelaces to connect it to the boat but anyway i digress as always but i, I had obviously fortress anchor on board and i had some chain We're inside the harbor having gone out and done A little bit of uh, photography work or whatever we'd done, and we came back in, and the wind was really pumping, like crazy pumping. And as I went in and kind of got close to the berth where they where they had us under the big highway bridge that's there in uh, in Charleston, I lost power in the engine. Holy mackerel! Like I nipped down. Like this, you know, this is gonna be a one minute fix or a ten minute fix or a half an hour fix. That's the first thing you always need to know when you've got an issue with the engine and you know you're still uh, underway. So. Clearly it wasn't gonna be a one minute fix and we were drifting very hard. So I grabbed hold of the Danforth anchor and I grabbed hold of a Dyneema sheet, which is about the worst possible thing you could do. I knew that the depth of the water was only about 10 meters and I knew the sheet was like 30 meters. So we weren't gonna have a problem there. No stretching it whatsoever. And I just bowled on to the back of the fortress anchor and chucked it over the side. <laughs> <laughs> and then watched as, in my mind, physics was completely destroyed as this fortress anchor skipped across the surface of the water on about a 10-meter stretch of uh, Dyneema sheet, skipped across the water alongside the boat as we drifted sideways at four or five knots uh, with no engine towards this bridge. So I'm like, holy mackerel, like... That's when I learned that, um, you know, the importance of chain attached to anchor. Clearly, I already knew that, but I just, I thought, you know, it's an emergency. The bottom's very, very close. It'll just slow the boat down just for a second. No, you have to. (laughs) You have to put some chain on a fortress anchor. There you go. Note to the wise, uh, if you're going to buy one of those aluminum anchors, buy some chain to go with it. And not white plastic chain. But anyway, so I, I chuck this thing out. It's skipping along, and a uh, a boat comes by. A boat comes by. I'm waving. He comes over. He's got a little T top with a couple of uh, 100, 120s on the back, like absolutely able to take us under tow, no problem at all. Throws us a line and and halts the progress of the open 60. The boat turns into the wind. This is all getting awesome. He starts to come under power. We start to move forward and the boat just will not move and will not move. I'm thinking, my God, the, the Bulbers must have gone aground in here. So I'm like, how is this even possible? And then I look and um, when he stopped the boat, the Danforth anchor or the aluminum Danforth anchor stopped skipping along the surface and sank to the bottom and promptly dug in. <laughs> And now he's pulling one way. And I've got this anchor out with a 30-meter 12-mil Dyneema sheet on it. And, uh, uh, and this big bridge is there. And he's waving at me and kind of gesticulating and shrugging his shoulders. What can he do? I'm like, oh, God, I have to cut the sheet. So I cut away 20 meters of 12-mil Dyneema sheet and say goodbye to a $480, whatever it was, fortress anchor. Um, so that I can get under tow and, and get to the dock. So there you go. If there's any learning in that, please take it. Please don't do that. If you're going to anchor, anchor. And if you're going to get a tow, get a tow. And if you're about to get a tow and you have anchored, pull the anchor up. <laughs> so anyway, Charleston had had ups and downs and uh, and and some really funny bits. Uh, da- well, da- I don't know I say downs. So I guess that's just more a, uh, a phrase of, uh, of speech. I guess the down was, we knew it was kind of coming to an end. It was... Uh, it was an exciting adventure, which it was bittersweet because you wanted to finish. Like for me, it was my second lap of the planet. I'd been at it two years and I just wanted to get done, but I had come together with this incredible group of people, not even counting all the people that are in the media side, the people that are in the marketing side, the photographers, the organizers, the race committee, the everything. There was so many people connected to it and they were all part of a family now that had been very focused on me and the other um, sailors for a long time. So getting underway was both the culmination of let's get this done, but also was moving me very quickly to the thing of this is going to be over and you know, real life, where <laughs> you can see like real life standing by the gate, like your mum after you've done something naughty and she's uh, coming to pick you up from school. Like you can see real life standing at the gate and it doesn't look happy. Okay. So start day was, um, start day was very good. Yes. I should have written some notes for this. <laughs> see when it's the ones about the moon and it's like loads and loads of facts and science, I have to write notes and then I sound really halting and... Confused as I attempt to read notes and speak at the same time, and if I am just talking about a story, then I miss all the details because I'm so excited to tell you about it that um, there's no there's no facts in it. But anyway, okay. So start day was awesome. Part of the starting process that the uh, race organizers had built into the event was the fact that from the start line to the first mark was normally I think like five or six miles, something like that. They would set a leg. Initially, which was along an angle whereby the public could see and the support boats and the uh, press boats and the, um, the boats with all the spectators on could sort of see and follow uh, the boats. And then we would turn on a mark then that would take us offshore so that we were then off on our course. So it was definitely two parts to this. There was this initial race from the start line to the first mark, and then from the first mark out and onto the, the leg of the race, whatever it had been. Now, I think Gutek had won one of these starts, but my overwhelming memory is the fact that Brad had won all of the starts. So he was obviously very keen to win the start in Charleston, and he, he was pretty devastating going into the start line. Start lines for uh, solo around the world races, you have to imagine they're a little bit different than most um, starts you might get involved in Clearly, when you're going into a start line normally in a yacht race, you're in a situation where you want to be across that line as competitively as possible. As soon as that gun goes bang, you are meant to be crossing that line at full speed, on the correct tack, totally wicked up, and and going as fast as you can. When you're doing round-the-world races, you have to be a little bit mm, philosophical. The actual race is going to last something north of 20 days, 30 days, maybe 40 days, going over the start line, even a couple of seconds ahead of somebody, a minute ahead of somebody, hell, if you go across the start line 15 minutes ahead of somebody, it means nothing. It means absolutely nothing. And if you start trying to enter a start sequence in a solo race or in a very long distance race with the same kind of competitiveness that you have in a round-the-cans race, In the end, it's gonna come and bite you on the ass. And the race committees that I've been involved in with this kind of stuff, they have very, very strong penalties that they offer up to any solo sailors or round the world crewed race sailors who are gonna go over the start line uh, early. I know in the clipper race, I think every second over the line was a 15 minute penalty, I feel like saying. It was something ridiculous. Like literally, they wouldn't call you back but if you were three seconds early going over the line, it was 45-minute penalty. So it really taught us to keep back. Now, obviously, clearly, we weren't doing that in the Velux race. But we are on board our boats with our support crew right into about, well, five minutes to go before the start. I think they all have to be off. So literally what you'll end up seeing is that boats will be um, turning and, and putting in their final tack getting the ballast in position, getting themselves set up for whatever comes next. On that last run in towards the start line, probably with a slack main sheet and a bad trim on the jib just to slow her down a bit, all of the support crew will pile off into waiting ribs, and then the solo sailor will start to bring on the trim and adjust the autopilot or hand steer it or whatever's going to happen and bring the boat into the line. Um, it's, it's like racing racing trains or something. like that You just have to be pretty much lined up before you know, everybody steps off because the ability to change direction quickly and do all the tricks that you would do on a normal race just don't exist. Even though the cockpits are small, the amount of helming that you'd have to do by hand so that you could um, trim and maneuver the boat and dodge other people and it's just not going to happen. So pretty much we're going in with autopilot and we're going in with a trim is the only thing really that sailor needs to worry about. Well, well, this time I had the bit between my teeth. The boat had been tidied up as much as possible by my awesome crewman, Aston Campion, and by my uh, ever faithful and, and ever energetic uh, shore boss, Donna Atkinson. And we went into that start line with the boat as, as clean and tidy and as good as she'd ever been. You'd think that in this kind of event, the boat would be getting worse as you go along, as you kind of beat it up going around the world. But the reverse was true for us. It was such a rush to get onto the water to do this event that the boat was actually in its best condition on the last leg. It had nice new white stripes painted on the bow and all of the branding had been adjusted around. I had some new branding on the sails and some bits had been colored in and she really looked as good as she'd ever done. Just to confirm though, this is the same time that I left the dock and those white stripes were wet (laughs) and I, I managed to walk through them as I was untying the the bow line and put two or three white footprints down the deck, so don't think for a second that we had all the answers, we very much didn't, but we were were getting better. So anyway, as the start sequence starts to roll down, we're into like three minutes, two minutes, I had got my smaller heads all up and I got the main uh, trim pretty eased, but as we came into that final couple of minutes, I let fly on the furling line, I trimmed in with all my might on the solen. Cranked her in tight, and Spartan just sat down on her ass and just took off like proper proper sticks. Like the great thing with these boats, you've got a hundred foot mast. That big solent at the front is slightly overlapping sails. so it's got a foot that's at least thirty feet long. It has a uh, a leech which is pretty much vertical. That means it's like a hundred foot on the on the leech, and the laugh of course is you know something like. I know 30, 34 meters, 35 meters this is an enormous sail. And the amount of propulsive force it's able to throw into the boat, the boat member only weighs about 9,000 kilos with all the sail area. And we set off. And I was in a nice position above Brad. And uh, we started charging off towards this mark, which is a nice reaching angle, which is exactly the sail configuration I had up, and exactly the right amount of force uh, in the mainsail sheet, and exactly the right trim in the ballast, and as we came into that final mark of the of the race, before the finish line, and the first uh, of, of the... Um, Challenges for this last leg across the Atlantic. As we came in, I was neck and neck with Brad, and then I just dipped in towards the mark, and I heard this fantastic call go out on the on the VHF: "Spartan, Spartan, Spartan, Spartan at the mark!" And that was it. I had won this first this first battle against Brad. I dipped into the mark before him, and uh, the huge benefit that was Velux offered as a thousand euros for that first stretch and we were so tight on the money it was unbelievable like there was a financial benefit there was a, a benefit for how I was feeling and there was a, a good vibe for for what was going to happen next so yeah coming out of there we then started to set off north. And going north from Charleston, you have the Gulf Stream running up your uh, your kind of right-hand side. As you set off north, what's going to happen? Your your course is going to start to arc towards Europe. But obviously, when we cross oceans and we're looking at that, that crossing on a Mercator projection, how it will look is it's going to look like a big curve. So, if we we're looking down on the Uh, the world I was taking the straightest line possible to get to La Rochelle but clearly what that would look like on a chart is that I was bowing my course way north up towards actually Nova Scotia where I am now and towards Newfoundland that was the best route for me to to go down and that meant that I had to at some point converge with cross and then get outside of the Gulf Stream and the Gulf Stream is a very interesting piece of water in the Americas. Sailors have a little bit of a different attitude to offshore sailing than I've come across in Europe. And I think a lot of it is to do with the Gulf Stream. You've got this incredible waterfront property, waterfront land, waterfront continental edge going from New York down to uh, Florida. But there's not that much sailing going on compared to what you would have in Europe. And that's because the Gulf Stream presents a pretty formidable barrier to anybody that just wants to go poddling off in a 30, 40 foot boat. You know, that current is racing north at four knots. If you get wind against that, it is absolutely the worst place to be. Because of the temperature differences, you've got huge storms that develop uh, above it. And at night, there's always dry lightning inside the clouds. And so it's not... Uh the best place in the world to be just like, I'm going to learn how to offshore sail. So, they, of course, they have the inland coastal waterway, which is basically a canal system that runs from New York to, well, to the Florida Keys. So, there's always the option to go inside. So, a lot of the traffic is actually inside, and there's very little outside because of the Gulf Stream. And the Gulf Stream also is something which, in terms of offshore sailing and speed records for offshore sailing, it's... It's kind of frowned upon to be setting a record in the Gulf Stream going north. Now, there was a record that was set by Ilbrook, um, the Volvo 60, uh, in 2001. And that, again, was on the edge. It's like geographically where exactly were you when this huge 24-hour distance was done because – if you're in the Gulf Stream, you could have up to four knots push behind you. And that obviously is clearly, then whatever your speed was, not representative of what the boat was doing, but a combination of the current plus your boat. So um, that area of the world, definitely got your eyes wide open when you're in a 60 foot performance boat, which is doing 16 to 20 knots in this wide river of, crazy currents and you've got all sorts of traffic coming back and forwards from New York and from, you know, from Nova Scotia, Canada, coming across from Europe. There's all sorts of boats. There's all sorts of currents. There's all sorts of weather and you've got to keep your eyes and ears open. So that was really the first night of leaving Charleston. But as I screeched to the outside of the Gulf Stream, I had found myself a very, very nice little pocket of breeze, and I got into it, and it was in that pocket to the east of the Gulf Stream that I set a distance record for the Velux Live Oceans race in 2000 and of 385 miles, which when you compare that people in the Vendee Globe now are going over 500 miles is nothing. When you compare that um, Falcon now, her best ever day is 438, that was actually the 24-hour distance record that she set in 2000. So, you know, I've got a long way to lift my game. But <laughs> 385 miles in a day is is cooking, like you're 16 or 17 knots or something when you're doing that kind of amount. And that obviously doesn't count for the fact that what's actually happening is your, your speed is surging way beyond 16, 17 knots, then coming back down and surging and surging. So at that point, I also saw my fastest speed from the boat, which I think I mentioned before, and that was like just over 33 knots. So quite incredible. Uh, boat to be on a quite incredible patch of water to be on and I got the best from it and and set that that record for what it's worth inside the Velux Five Oceans race so onwards and forwards and upwards and on I went towards Europe and I've got to say I was in a very good place in my head I was feeling more positive about the future and starting to calculate through a little bit what I'd done uh all this crazy sailing um, this period that we're talking about I've kind of looked back at this and tried to work this out accurately. Basically, when I did the uh, the Clipper race, from starting to go to work for Clipper, all the training, all the voyaging that we did as part of getting our crews ready, which, you know, Clipper have a very, very intense uh, training uh, protocol that they put all of their uh, clients through. Um, by the time we'd done all that and all the deliveries and everything else, it was just on about fifty, fifty-two, fifty-three thousand 53,000 miles. The Velux 5 Oceans race... I'm not sure exactly, but I think my total was 40,000 miles. And then there was a couple of deliveries and training and all the rest of it um, afterwards. So you're just up on around ninety-five, ninety-six thousand 96,000 (laughs) miles that I'd sailed in since, what, April 2009, 2010, 2011. Yeah, so... Yeah, so two two years basically two years. <laughs> yeah, that's that'd be why I was tired, right? Ninety five thousand miles in two years, and I wasn't on a merchant ship. Yeah, so that's why I was looking forward to the end of this race. But I was I was getting my head straight about what all that meant to me and how I was going to move forward. So I was I was pushing hard, and then some interesting things started to happen. One of the interesting things was that. I could see on the the, every six hours we get this scheduled report from the race committee and we call them skeds. And on the sked I could see that I was actually catching Brad. Now Brad um, was maybe not doing the very high speeds I was doing, but he had a lower angle because he had a better sail configuration which allowed him to sail about 10 degrees deeper and he had a better VMG to La Rochelle than I did. But I was doing a very good job of sailing very quickly along the other two sides of the triangle, where he was going along the hypotenuse, where he should be, best VMG. I didn't have the sails to do that, so I was just burning along the other two sides of the triangle. And I could see that he was getting closer. So I was talking to him a bit on sat phone. Um, We all were sort of chatting to each other and and sharing uh, the experience with each other a little bit and asking some questions in my case and, you know, just... Being, being, not like all the time, but every couple of days we call around to each other. And uh, I I said to him, I said, I'm getting close to you, buddy. He's like, I know, I know, I'm working hard, I'm working hard, but I can't shake you. So I was having this conversation. I could see him getting closer. I could see him getting closer on the skeds. And then one day I was sitting there at the nav station, and boom, up on my chart plotter comes the AIS signature of Le penguin That's his boat. Like, holy mackerel, like, this is really close. Like, I have never been in this situation where, you know, a thousand miles or something into a race, I'm this close to the person who has dominated and won every other stage of this race. And uh, when Brad and I talked to each other on VHF and pre-race and after-race and stuff like that, um, he called my boat Red Rider, which, if you know that um, reference, is a Johnny Cash song. Uh, and he was Rubber Ducky, which is from the film Convoy. So uh, I'd be uh, chatting away to him. So I get on the VHF, and I say, uh, Rubber Ducky, Rubber Ducky, this is Red Rider, Red Rider. And I go up on the deck, and he is literally, after a couple of hours, we're chatting on the VHF, I can see the mast of his boat. After a couple more hours, I can... Talk to him on the VHF, and I can see him stood on the back of his boat. So I'm like, "Whoa! Like this is this is getting good. Like I actually know what I'm doing here." This, and I had this wonderfully positive connectivity with the person who was ahead of me. That um, that was you know it was, became fun. It wasn't just outright war and competition and everything else. I knew the person, and he was he was drawing me forward as much as I was pushing myself forward. So. Um, did I pass him? No, of course I didn't. <laughs> he he calls back to me, "Red Rider, Red Rider." This is Roboducky, uh, I'll see you in La Rochelle. And he had been getting this Jenica ready, and he opened that thing, and he was gone. <laughs> he did a horizon job on me. He'd obviously been watching what I was doing. I'm Like that's the thing. I think I'm like the only one that's learning. He'd obviously been eyeballing what I was doing, and he had realized that I. Couldn't respond with a deeper cut sail that I was stuck with the the four and a half sails if I wanted to go quickly. So he just pulled out this quantum Jenica, and that was the last I saw of him. <laughs> but uh, onwards and upwards I went. So this big arcing climb. Now we're kind of north of New York on a big curve that's going out across the Atlantic, and that takes you up pretty much to the latitude of where I am now. now at this point, I had been to Nova Scotia once uh, with the clipper race, but I was totally ignorant as to what it was. I knew that it was where Derek was from, uh, but beyond that, like I had no connectivity. But it was only within a couple of days that I was uh, attracting a bit more attention from the Nova Scotian authorities than I, I might have realized. So here's the story. <laughs> Everything was going fine. Everything was going fine. And then I started heading out across the Grand Banks. Now, the Grand Banks is something you may well have heard of. It's a large, quite shallow fishing area, which was the basis of the huge rise in fishing all through the Long Island Sound and Maine, Connecticut, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick a little bit, and the development of Atlantic fishing this shallow area is an incredible breeding ground well was for cod but is still now for all sorts of other fish and that's the place where in that film perfect storm they go out onto that's the grand banks there so it's very famous for fishing it's very famous for being extremely cold and extremely foggy and extremely inhospitable in the winter, and it's famous for very rough weather. So, as we start to curve and go towards this, we're in, it's like May, so it's not really a time of year. It's like, well, it's like May now, actually. Oh my goodness, wow. I guess I'm telling this story. Huh, that's interesting. Yeah, this all happened like exactly nine years ago, late like, to the day almost. Interesting. So, I starting to curve my course out into the Atlantic, and I am pumping, like some of the images you see at the beginning of the Patreon videos of the boat flying along, and all the spray coming out the front of it, those images were shot then, the boat is doing between 16 and 22 knots most of the time, we've got the Code 5 uh, flying out the front, so that's a roller furling sail that has got, it's got a pretty deep cut, but it's for heavier winds, you know, we've got like 20, 25 knots, something like that, we've got uh, wave heights of about two to three meters. I've got my ballast in at the back of the boat. I've got my keel canted. And I've got a little bit of daggerboard down just to stop her tracking too much sideways. But she's flying. She's flying, right? So what happened? Let me see. So <laughs> are you sitting comfortably? Then I'll begin. It was nighttime. And the boat was rocking and rolling. And the deck light is on. The deck is illuminated. The white spray of all the waves hitting the bow and crashing in arcs across the bow of the boat. They're all illuminated in this wonderful, beautiful yellow iridescent glow coming down from the mast. We've got all the little red lights of the instruments on. I've got the radio playing and I've got the moon and the stars and these beautiful waves. Lots and lots of light from the from the moon uh, lighting up the scene around me and it's just magical. Magical sailing. So the boat is pumping along pretty much as fast as she can go. But I go into the back, go into the Lazaret area, and I look into the inspection windows, big, thick Lexan inspection windows on top of the aft ballast tanks. And I see that there's water slopping around in there, and it's not, the tanks aren't fully full of water. So what I could do with Spartan was put uh, up to two tons of water in the back of the boat, one to starboard, one to port, which could help on all sorts of reaching angles, or if you filled both of them up and you were like power reaching at this 120 true wind angle that she loves so much, then the back of the boat would sit down, it would pop the bow of the boat further into the air, she'd stay on the surf longer and longer, and that means that she's just going faster and faster and faster. So when I look into the inspection hatches, on the back of the boat, and I see that there's a bit of room in there that I can put some more water in, I think, aha, what I'm going to do is I'm going to press the tanks. Now, pressing the tanks is a kind of marine engineering phrase, and it literally means I'm just going to get as much water in there as I possibly can, okay? So how do I press the tanks? Inside the cockpit of the boat, right, you right, know, inside the cabin of the boat, not the cockpit, inside the cabin of the boat, there are these four inch diameter, that's like uh, 10 centimeter diameter valves, which are cylindrical, and you have a handle on the top, and you push them down, and when you do that, a a part the size of like a, a, a mug, like a coffee mug, pops out the bottom of the boat, and it's got a big hole in it, and you either you turn the handle on the top, and if that hole is facing forwards, then water rushes in. The boat's is still doing like 20 knots. The water rushes in through this four-inch aperture, up a big flexible pipe, and goes to the ballast tank. And you can send it to the back, and you can send it to the front. You can send it from one side to the other, and this sort kind of stuff. But if you then turn that handle on the top, rotate the coffee cup underwater, now the hole is facing aft, and there's a low pressure area behind the cylindrical shape of this uh, scoop as we call them and that low pressure then will suck all the water out of the tank so very very simple system push it down put it forwards water is jetting into the tanks put it down turn it to the aft and then water is being sucked out of the tanks right but it's all dependent on the fact that the boat's moving at high speed so i think i'm going to press the tanks a little bit now you have to be a little bit careful doing this because the tanks are they, they form the floor of the lazarette. So one of their skins, the lower skin, is the hull of the boat. Their upper skin is the floor of the lazarette. Their trailing edge, their trailing their trailing face, is the transom of the boat. And their forward edge is the bulkhead between the lazarette and the cabin, OK? You have to be careful, because whilst all that is very, very structural and strong, there is a laxan inspection plate on the top of them, and the the valve, not the valve, the pipe that comes out the top of the tank, which then goes on deck, is close to the aperture of the scoop, but it 's not the same, so you can end up with two big jets of water jetting out the back of the boat if you are not aware of it, and you've got the scoop down, the tanks are full, you will end up with a lot of pressure inside the tanks, and it's just jetting its way out of these two vents on deck. So no problem, because I'm on it, right? I know what I'm doing. I've just sailed around the world. I just sailed around the world twice, for God's sakes. In fact, I just caught up with Brad and set a distance record. I'm just going to press the tanks. I know what I'm doing. So I drop the scoops, and I face them forwards, and I go up to the companionway to have a cigarette and watch what's going on. As I light my cigarette, I look forward, and the beautiful light of the uh, deck light is picking up the the little golden diamonds of the water coming over. The, oh my God! The tack of the Code Five sail is literally parting as I'm looking at it. The front lower corner of this huge spinnaker, which is like I know that one's probably the size of a tennis court, and very very important to me going fast on this leg. As I'm watching it, it's just splitting. It's like one foot split, three foot split. Six-foot split. Now, it's got a long way to go because it's 120 foot on the luff. But it's like 10 foot into it, 20 foot into it. I'm like, well, there's no way I can do anything about this. So I go to the lazy sheet and flake it. (laughs) And it keeps splitting halfway up the luff, two-thirds the way up the luff. And as it gets to the very top of it, I cut the working sheet. And my Code 5 sail just disappears into the nighttime (laughs) with one-and-a-half sheets still connected to it gone. That's it. So I'm like, whoa. So now there's just like this raggedy situation going on the front where I've got this anti-torsional stay with like a lot of sail material hanging off it. I very quickly have to ease the main, adjust the load of trim, adjust the, uh, the autopilot so that it is able to kind of counter for the fact there's now nothing pulling at the front of the boat. I unfurl the solent so I get back up to speed again. So first you get speed and then you do your housekeeping. So, okay, we get speed back going and then I go to the bow and I pulled down the tattered remains of this sail, which has just gone from the size of a tennis court to looking like, I don't know, like a, a banner at a, at, a, at a happy birthday party kind of thing, you know? So I pull it all down. I'm still a bit shell-shocked. <laughs> I just lost these very expensive sheets and this very expensive sail. I push it all through the forward hatch, and I think, well, OK, hang on, I've got the code six. At least it'll be something. So I go downstairs, downstairs, listen to me. I go down inside the boat, and I, it's time to go back to sea. And I start shoving this sail up on deck. So what we do is they're in bags inside the boat, um, and then they have to be fed through. So this would have been coming from somewhere at the back of the boat. I don't remember exactly where, but I shove it, either in the lazarette or on the cabin or something. I then feed it up onto the deck, like kind of wrestling a big anaconda, shove it up through the little hatch on the, on the deck. You don't carry the whole bags around the too heavy. You move the sails round as a as a, a a piped kind of furled rolled up unit. Put it all up on the deck. Put it into the tack fitting. Put it into the halyard fitting. Hoist it up. Get the sheets set up. Open it. Looking good. Starting to pull. Great. Trim the main. Get the solen all sorted out. Look at my watch. And it's literally like 40 minutes. Like 40 minutes. I only went up on deck for cigarette. Long since forgotten. oh Like what are you going to do? And then I think, oh man, like I better go and close those tanks. <laughs> yeah so yeah that didn't work out so good i went into the boat for the first time in 40 minutes into the the cabin of the boat now the cabin of the boat the boat's beam is uh 19 feet and that cabin was 21 feet long it has a indented roof section towards the aft of it which is the cockpit floor and then there's the engine and the batteries and a little kind of upstand which has got my stove on it, there's no sink in that boat. The uh, bunk is made up above the engine, the dash uh, where I sit and all my instruments are, that's way up above the uh, the engine. And then there's two bunks on either side which have got my gear in it. Well, now I have, well, I have like the Atlantic Ocean inside the boat. As I swing myself down into the boat, because it was just a quite a small hatch on that boat, you had to swing yourself in feet first. I go into thigh-deep water. I kid you not, like just below mid-thigh-deep water. And you can imagine what I thought about that. (laughs) I'm a 1,000 miles offshore, just on the edge of the Grand Banks, south and east of Canada, parts of Canada I don't know anything about, in this boat, and there is a lot of water inside it, like a lot. Now, the first thing that jumps to my mind is, I've struck something. I have parted the hull somewhere. Uh, You know, I've got to start pumping. Now, these kind of boats have limited ability to pump. Um, If you're going to have a boat which is your offshore vehicle for high latitudes and you're going to do the best possible job you can in bilge pumping, you'd be talking about um, marine, bronze, engine-driven, salvage pumps. You'd be talking about big... uh, Big rotary pumps, big electric pumps, big, like, I'm a big fan of bilge pumping, but you literally will end up going down a terrible, non-competitive rabbit hole if you start doing that on these boats. So what we tend to do is, we don't scrimp exactly on the uh, bilge pumping, but it's very tactical. You can pump quite a lot of water, but you have to go and get them from, there's one in each part of the boat and you have to go and get them and you have to get the manual one out and you have to do this and do that and do the other it's like this is such a large amount of water i need like an instant fix right now because the issue that i was simultaneously absolutely aware of is the fact that my batteries were already underwater which meant that they were discharging at a rapid 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 rate the engine was half underwater my satellite gear was just above the level of the water the water it was on the side that was slightly higher the boat was still heeled over somewhat and the autopilot gear was in the most protected place it possibly could be but now it's literally like my you know 10 inches above this water that's slopping around so like holy moly so the good thing is that all the time i spend offshore i do whatever I can to play the what if game. The what if game is where you sit looking at situations, looking at what's going on around you and thinking, what if that broke right now? What would I do? What if that caught fire right now? What if I get my hand trapped in here? What if I slip and stub?" All the time you're playing what if, which sounds very kind of uh, like boring and straight laced and everything else, but it's not like you're freaking out. You're in a, you know, a very dynamic situation. What you're doing is recognizing threats, recognizing issues, and mitigating them before they come along and spoil the party. Well, what you can find is that answers to problems are actually counterintuitive, that actually what you need to do is, uh, I don't know, like, cut that thing and throw it away rather than try and hold on to it, or that you're going to need to throw a bucket of seawater on that electrical stack because there's no other way of firefighting that area, or, I, I don't know, it's hard to kind of come up with an idea off the on the fly, but one of the ones I do know was this. <laughs> I had spent some time on some lovely sunny day way, way back thinking, what happens if I have like a major flooding incident in this boat? And I had realized this, the only thing that you can do is spin the flexible hoses off those scoops, the scoops intended for the ballast, and turn the scoops to the aft position so that there's low pressure. And then those scoops will just pull water from whatever's around the now open coupling that runs back to the ballast tank. So I did. (laughs) <laughs> what I did was, you'd think, okay, well, is water going to flood in through these two four-inch apertures? Well, no, it didn't, because I was driving along. I knew that they were going to be fo- uh, pointing aft immediately, and I knew I needed to get the water out from where I'd split the hull. So I went to the tanks, and I spun off the flexible hose. Now, this had two effects. Number one, yeah, the scoops started pulling water from the cabin, but now two tons of water from the ballast tanks aft was flooding into the cabin. And it was my uh, awareness, my guess, my pre-planned idea that whilst more water may come in, ultimately the scoops would suck it all out. And indeed, that's what started happening. These two four-inch hoses from the ballast tanks just erupted with water going everywhere. But equally, I could hear these scoops like sucking, sucking, sucking water. So I just got a plastic bag and put it over the uh, sat gear, sat uh, communication gear and over the autopilots and started dabbing at them, trying to wipe them. And they're pretty much marinized, but they're only marinized to a very low level. Like they'll take a bit of spray. They'll take a few splashes over the connections, but they are not in any way waterproof. So I did what I could. And then so lots of water came in and then lots of water went out and the scoops reduced the water level inside the boat down to about six inches. But as soon as it was... Past the point where it was going to be all over the um, the satellite gear and the autopilots, I was in there with a bucket. And there's a video somewhere of me saying um, the U.S. Coast Guard ruling is that a scared man with a bucket is the best bilge pumping that there is. And that is absolutely true. And I'm just slinging water out of the hatch as fast as I possibly could. So we get to a point now where the scoops aren't doing anything else. I go and get all the other electric uh, bilge pumps from elsewhere in the boat. I connect them all together. And obviously my gear is saturated. The rubbish bag is split apart. Like it's just devastation. But during this entire time, the boat has been sailing at 16 to 20 knots under autopilot across the Grand Banks in 25 knots and two and a half meter seas. Like, that was the counterintuitive thing. You'd think that, oh my God, there's a huge problem. I better stop and deal with the problem. Well, no, the answer was the only way of pumping all this water out fast enough to save the autopilots and the sat communication gear was to keep moving. And that's exactly what I did. So... It was about this time, which is, you know, total here, we're talking maybe, I don't know, half an hour. Like, they, it really did suck the water down very, very quickly. Um, the a thought came to my mind, like, I'd better contact the race authority and tell them I've got this issue, because I don't want this to then, you know, I don't know what the issue is. I've been looking around during this entire time, but I've got no idea where this water's come from. I'm not seeing any geysers coming up through the hull anywhere. I'm just trying to think, like, how how could this happen? And then I realized, just at the point when I'm thinking I better call the race authority, and I'm thinking, well, what am I going to tell them? And I start looking for, okay, what's the story here? I realize what's happened. And what's happened is I had the scoops down for that 45 minutes or whatever it was dealing with the Code 5. There was so much pressure in the aft ballast tanks that I've actually blown the bulkhead that separates the after part of the cabin, separates the cabin from the lazarette, which is the forward... Face of the ballast tanks, I have blown the bulkhead (laughs) forwards. I've separated it from the hull with all this pressure. So it ain't good, but at least the hull's not split. You know what I'm saying? It's like it ain't brilliant, but uh, at least the hull's not split. So I get on the horn to them, hey, yeah, it's Chris. I'm, oh, Chris, oh my God, they're scrambling a helicopter from uh, Halifax or St. John's. I'm like, whoa, 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 what's going on? And they're like, your EPUB's been going off for the last 40 minutes. I'm like, whoa, 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 stop the clock. Like, this is a serious situation, but I'm on top of it. So that's when I go and look and discover that my secondary EPUB, which is inside my grab bag, the grab bag's got wet, the EPUB has got a water activation function two little contacts on it it's been underwater, the water and it's been transmitting so awesome that the epurb works not awesome that they are now scrambling a helicopter because no one's been able to get in contact with me oh my god so i'm like no, no 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 okay get off the phone from me right now and call them and tell them i'm fine i had an issue but i'm on top of it put the phone down Five minutes later, they call back, okay, it's cancelled, what's going on? We've also told all the other competitors to turn around, like, oh, my God. So, what had been happening, unbeknownst to me, with the EPUB going off, is that Donna had been contacted, like, uh, every person in the race committee had been woken up. All the competitors had been asked, to all of them, you know, Derek and Brad and Gutek had been asked to turn and head towards my position, and... I had become the center of the show for the last hour without even realizing it, what an idiot. So I confirmed to them, I am fine. So they have got all the other competitors off on their way. I look back at the chart plotter, I look at the scared, I look at everything else that comes in. I still set one of the quickest six hour times I did in the whole race. Even with all that going on, I literally lost the the code five, went straight to the Solent, lost a couple knots, went straight back to the code five, and then with all that hullabaloo inside the boat, my speed came down because I would lost my ballast in the back of the boat. But it you know wasn't hit that hard, so it just shows, hey, like better born, better born lucky than smart or something. But. I got everything dried out, and I did have to, like, dry everything out. The batteries were never quite the same after that. They had been underwater for probably, like, 30 or 40 minutes, and they're just discharging terribly through the terminals. The engine was okay. The starter mode was a bit reluctant. I had to strip all that apart, but very, very lucky. And, um, you know, I actually now have the opportunity once in a while to interact with people that are from the SE Rescue here in Halifax, and I actually have met one of the guys that was on that flight who was... um, who was mobilized that night. So <laughs> thank you to the air crews in St. John's and in Halifax who were potentially gonna come and get me, but thank God uh, they didn't have to leave the ground. We don't want to put anybody at risk for us to be able to pursue this uh, this, this challenge in these events. So onwards I went. Now, how was I doing? Well. I was actually doing all right. I was really was doing all right. I had been in a close-pitched battle with Derek and with Gutek. Um, they had moved ahead. Uh, I'd fallen behind. They'd, you know, gone behind. And it was, it was all very close. The next thing that happened on this uh, voyage, which was a shock and a, and a kind of and a, and a wake-up call for me, was the fact that I was, I think I was about, oh, I, I know exactly how far I was. I was 385 miles from La Rochelle. So, we really are now getting into, this is a, you know, 40,000 mile mile race around the world, and I'm now down inside the last 400 miles, and I am in, get this, second place. Like, I'm actually there. Now, Brad is 150, 200 miles ahead of me, but... I'm in second place. And Gutek and, and Derek are very close, so there's no way that it's relaxed. But I had been focused. I had been driven. I was aware of what was coming next. I was on top of it, and I had been pushing the boat despite the fact I wasn't able to put any half ballast in. I would put all my sails on the very back of the boat, and we were cooking. We were doing a good job. And you know, what's the secret of fast offshore sailing? Drive straight lines. (laughs) If anybody wants to just like, spoiler alert, uh, all of the things I will ever share with you about offshore sailing, uh, unless you are literally dodging geographical features or dodging into amazingly beneficial weather or unless you have some extra level of skill which some people do in meteorology like I totally get it unless you have one of those things if you've got no other plan drive straight and that's what I did on this one I just drove straight to Larachelle and it was probably my, my my best offshore race I've ever done for that it was uh I was in second and if I do say so myself I deserved it I had worked my way there I'd overcome problems I was thinking smart I knew how to drive the boat And that's all you can do. The big three that help you go fast offshore and sailing are knowing where to put the boat on the water. It doesn't matter if you're fleet racing, match racing, um, team racing, solo racing, whatever it is you're doing, if you know how to put the boat in the right part of the ocean, you you are head and shoulders above everybody else. If you know where the current is, if you know where that weather is, if you know, okay, stick to the straight line, or whatever it is, if you're in the right patch of ocean, you're already on a winning streak. Next, you need to be able to drive the boat fast. That might be coordinating the crew. That might mean knowing how to trim correctly, having the right sails, doing all the evolutions, whatever it is, but you've got to be able to drive the boat to its optimal. So get it in the optimal position, get it at the optimal speed. Okay. Then the other one, what's the other big leg of the trifecta of going fast offshore? Being able to fix stuff. If you can't fix stuff, whether it's crew morale, situations with the Boat, things breaking, sails breaking, hydraulics, electronics, computers, people hurting themselves. If you can't fix stuff, it doesn't matter how fast you are and it doesn't matter how well you're positioned, you cannot finish the race. And if you can't finish the race, there is no result. So I may not be the most awesome at putting it in the right part of the ocean, but I knew how to drive the boat fast and I had fixed everything I needed to fix. And so it was a very good place to be at. You know, I've, I've had a lot of this where I was very much behind the curve, this was the point in which I felt I was not ahead of the curve, but I was at least in the right part of the of, of the experience. I was close to Brad. I was ahead of the other guys. We were changing positions. I was driving the boat within its polars. It was an awesome, awesome feeling. And I was lying on the bunk next to the nav station. I remember it was daylight, and I had 400 miles to go, and the other guys were 100 miles behind, and Brad was 150 ahead. And as I lay there thinking, God, this is is great. (laughs) You can tell what happened next. Something else went wrong. There was a huge bang. (laughs) So the first thought is the boat struck something, went on deck, checked the bow immediately, Nothing there, okay. Uh, The boat's got a bit of an angle at the time, so I can't the keel more, so I can look at the keel. Nope, nothing there, just a big shark bite out the back of it, which it had for the entire way around the world, whole of the story. then I lift up the daggerboards and lift them up beyond their normal thing so they're almost completely out of the deck of the boat. Daggerboards are fine. I look at the rudders at the back, nothing there. I go inside, I sweep through the whole boat, nothing there. I go and look up at the rig, I lie on my back with binoculars, I check all of the rig, everything. I'm like, what the hell? Like, I must have struck something and then rolled over it or like, what could it be? Like, I don't know. So I go back inside after a good 20 minute check all around the boat sitting at the nav station. I still can't work it out. And I look at the keel box. And the keel box literally sits um, under my feet, When, or kind of forward of my feet. The dash is made up on the back edge of the keel box. And the keel box is where this, the, these keels on these boats are like, hinged. They're called canting keels. They have a bloody great big pin that goes through as big as the top of a coffee cup, like a big mug. That's how big the pin is that goes through this Hinge point in the keel, and then three and a half meters down, you've got about 3,000 kilos of lead or tungsten, or whatever's down there. And then about um, 60 centimeters, like a couple of feet up above the pin, there's two big hydraulic rams which connect to the top of the keel and push it from left to right. And doing this, moving this keel around, moving all this weight around, can have the same effect as putting 60. People, 6 zero, 60 people sitting on the side deck of the boat. When that keel comes across with that huge lever arm and that massive weight and moves over to that side of the boat, it creates a huge righting moment, equal to having 60 people sitting down one side of the boat. But the forces involved with doing that, as you can imagine, are just preposterous. You've got two foot of lever above the pin, and you've got 15 foot of lever below the pin. 60 centimeters above, and like four and a half meters, or, no, three and a half meters, sorry, below, and then all the weight, and then all the dynamics of the boat moving and turning and bouncing over the waves and all the rest of it. So the main pin that goes through the keel is huge and made of some super, super tough steel, like Aquamet 22 or something. And then the pins at the top, where the, the two big Carboni rams come in and connect to the top of the keel, there's two big pins there as well that the, that the Rams hold on to, and they're also giant things made out of aquamet 22. Aquamet 22 is a, a metal which, where stainless steel breaks at like 40,000 PSI, it breaks like 140,000 PSI. It's incredibly hard to work with, it's incredibly uh, expensive, but it is unbelievable strength to it, and that's what these pins are made from. So I'm looking at the keel box, and I'm looking at the, the two Rams, and I think, That one ram looks a bit funny compared to what I (laughs) expect. So I slither down underneath the dash, and I grab hold of this ram, which again is like getting hold of a a big coffee cup diameter type thing. And I pick it up, and it just moves completely free. And that's when I realized that (laughs) it broke in one of the ram pins. I was like, holy mackerel. So I take off a little carbon panel, which has a kind of seal on it that the the, the uh, ram goes through, and I look at the pin, and the pin indeed is sheared through. Everything's okay. The keel is still attached to the boat. The other ram is still in play, and these rams have got a diameter of like 10 inches or something, you know, like 25 centimeters. Like the, It can handle it. I immediately centered the keel so there's no particular pressure on it, and I look at the keel pin, and the keel pin is already two-thirds rusted through. So I'd been sailing all the way around the world, doing all this stuff, and this pin had been breaking and breaking. And she finally let go 400 miles, just slightly under, from the finish line. And I looked at it, I digested it, I comprehended it, and I just said one thing, thank you so much. And that's exactly how I felt. I already had this hugely intimate relationship with this boat. She, I felt, had come good on her side of the deal. Remember, I'd sat in the marina with her nearly a year before. I finished the clipper race, came down, sat with the boat, and I said, look, if you want to go around the world again, I'll take you. But here's a deal. You've got to look after me, and I'll look after you. Okay? And the next day, we got our sponsorship. So I know. I, do I believe in... God and angels and stuff like that? No. Do I believe in pixies and fairies? No. Do I believe in magic? Yeah, I guess, you know, I think I think sometimes I think sometimes the universe is ready to give you something. And if you just give it a little push, you know, maybe, I don't know, it's a nice way of looking at it, to feel that you might have some way of affecting fate and luck and all the rest of it. Obviously, ultimately, it was Sir Robin Knox-Johnson that gave me the opportunity. It's purely him and only him, and I'm really very appreciative of that. But that feeling that the night before I'd sat quietly with that boat in the marina, which a boat which had, you know, a, a reef of weed on the bottom of it, prawns in the ballast tanks, I always say, a bird's nest up the mast. It hadn't been sailing properly in four years. I sat there with her and said, We're right at the edge of this. Like, They may give me sponsorship, and I can just about do it. But if we're going to go and do this, you got to look after me, and I'll look after you. And that's why, at that moment, I just said to her, thank you. Because the weather report was pretty good, all the way to La Rochelle. She hadn't broken this in the Southern Ocean. She hadn't broken this in all the storms I've been through, and all the situations, and all the crash attacks, and everything else. It let go with 400 miles to go. Just, I think, to say we need to stop now. <laughs> we, we, we need to go to the boatyard immediately. <laughs> so I phoned Brad and I said to him, hey, Brad, look, I've got this situation. Um, how safe is this uh, with just one ram on it? And he said, it's fine. You just only put about five or 10 degrees. Now, I think he literally said, put only five degrees of, of, of keel on uh, so you don't overstress the remaining ram. So I just did that. And... Um, well, you know what, I've told you some pretty exciting finish stories of, uh, of coming in, but Brad got in about a day ahead of me, and then it was my turn, and the winds were very, very light, I was coming back to La Rochelle, which had been the setting off point for two round the world races for me, um, I was, I wasn't going very fast. I don't remember there being very much wind at all. It was flat seas, very, very sunny. I remember I had I had a very special pocket watch with me, which I took me everywhere, and I had that in my pocket. I had called my mum. I had called everyone that was important to me. I'd spoken to folks, and uh, we just poodled in. And I went up out onto the side arm, that big deck spreader on the boat. I climbed up there and had some pictures taken, and then I went over the finish line, and there were people clapping and cheering and. And then I drove the boat into La Rochelle Marina and, you know, kind of the story fades into history. Like, what is there to say? There was uh, there was celebration. They got a T-shirt for me, which was very cool, which I think there's some pictures of somewhere. It says 182 on it. I became the 182nd person ever to sail around uh, the world, which was – no, 182nd person ever sailed solo around the world south of the three stormy capes. So – there's still some improvements to be made on that, sailing nonstop around the world solo, all sorts of things, but you know, don't take anything away from it. I had, I had achieved this thing, I'd brought the boat in two days before I'd had the keel pin break, You know, a week and a half before I'd had a major flooding incident, like all sorts of things had happened, but I had managed to come in second. So after all of it, my results were fourth, fourth, third, third, is that right? Second, yeah, that's right. Fourth, fourth. So from Larachelle to Cape Town, fourth out of five. Cape Town to New Zealand, fourth out of five. And then Christoph Bullens, unfortunately, retired. And then round the horn, third. But all that situation, oh my God, going into Punta del Este. And then uh, from Charleston, uh, I got a third going into Charleston with Gutex stuck in Recife with broken ribs and a broken forestay. And then I got second coming in. So definitely a story of, Elevation and development and learning and uh, and challenge. And it was it was awesome. Like, you know, the story as I'm telling it is pretty much what the reality is like. Like, I should be able to tell you about some huge, like, celebration party. I've got to say, whilst the VLUX 5 Oceans team were awesome as people, i got to say that the, the prize giving was a massive anticlimax. Like, I remember being invited to the start of the Volvo race in 2000 and, was that 2011? Yeah, it would've been 2011. I went to the start and the team that I was assigned, I was writing an article for them for the uh, for a magazine in Hong Kong and they received uh, IWC wristwatches before they set off. That's an 11,000 euro wristwatch before they set off. I had just sailed solo around the world and I got back and I got a 500 buck Nautical watch and there was like five people stood in the audience uh, for, you know, to like, Say well done, and it was like, hmm, this feels like a bit like anticlimax. But what what else would there be like in the end? Like even if you were stood there and there was a hundred thousand people, in the end, you walk off the stage, you walk away from the boat, the event's over, and it's done. And that's of course that thing of group dynamics of. You know forming a group and then storming through your differences and then performing really getting it together and then uh, norming making that into you know your group how it works, how it functions all this stuff and then at the end of it mourning and that period where you get to the end of things and it's done I still had to sail from uh, La Rochelle back to the UK which was which was fun I oh, could talk about that quickly and then uh, I knew that after that it was going to be the end of this thing, and and I had no idea what was going to come next. So, yeah, I guess I felt then exactly what you're feeling now. There's no, like, kind of, like, da-da moment. It's just you've done it. In fact, I can remember for a fact going back and sitting in the hotel room, the same hotel room, the same window that I'd sat in before we left to go around the world, and I sat there thinking... What exactly just happened? Like, <laughs> and I think I did the same in the Clipper race, which also set off from La Rochelle. So I'd had these two occasions of coming back to the same hotel in La Rochelle, right by the, uh, the the waterfront there, right by the aquarium, and just sitting in there and going, mm, "What exactly just happened to me?" So. The trip back to the UK was very interesting, and there was a couple of notable things. One was that a pigeon flew on board as I was leaving La Rochelle, and it was very, very tired, and I brought it inside, which pigeons are used to being handled, so I brought it inside, and then it just, like, took up residence, <laughs> and it took five days to sail back to. Oh, there was a good thing, which I remember that um, I sailed out of La Rochelle with um, Patty Ann Verberg, that was uh, Derek Hatfield's partner, and she sailed Derek's boat back to Canada solo, which I thought was amazing. She hadn't sailed an open 60 like that before, but she'd always been around Derek sailing. She'd always been around everything he'd done. She had a lot of technical knowledge and she challenged herself and, and did indeed do it. But I remember sailing out of La Rochelle with her. And then the last I saw of her was as we went into a school and then I like never saw her again for mm, like for three years, four years until I came to live in Canada. But um, no, she successfully brought the boat back to Canada, which was cool, but I got this pigeon on board. Don't know. I think he called him Barry or something. He just wouldn't leave. Just sat inside the, the boat all the time, like throw him over the side literally and he'd just fly and come straight back in. So, okay, fine, I've got a little friend. And then a real feeling like, I want to get back, I want to get back. I remember rounding the corner at the casquettes and heading in towards the Solent. And I remember going, there was a wonderful moment where I was passing Portland Bill, which is a famous kind of promontory sticking into the channel off the bottom of the UK. And the... Ship now unfortunately lost to us, but the bounty was inside me about one mile which is like a fantastic reproduction and, and representation of times long gone. I'm just off Portland Bill, which is a famous landmark in the UK. The sun's shining and outside of me is HMS Daring, which at the time was one of the brand new um, frigates from the uh, British Navy. Like couldn't even see it on my radar. Totally freaking me out. Like it's massive ship. Couldn't see it on radar because of the stealth technology it has. Um, but just this crazy moment of like the history of sailing on my one side and the future of maritime travel on my other side. And then coming up and and heading into the solent and the the uh run into the solent there past the needles and that has always been it's been a fantastic landfall for sailors for you know a thousand years and coming in there i think i came in in the evening and i remember yeah i i I sailed in under spinnaker with a heavy tide Uh, uh was it against me or with me there was a lot of tidal movement. The tide was sweeping from west to east, which then as you make the turn to dive into the Needles Channel, you're really going a lot of kind of sideways motion. I remember sailing the boat in under full spinnaker, sliding it sideways across the current, cutting past the bridge, cutting past Hearst Castle, and just being very impressed with myself i guess to put it that way like yeah i know how to do this and then coming up to a mooring at cow's green and snagging the mooring and getting my open 60 back to where it had begun its challenge from and um Yeah, it was cool. The next day I went into Portsmouth and they had arranged this kind of homecoming and lots of press and crew members from my Qingdao crew and my mum and dad were there and all sorts of things, which was awesome. Some of the best pictures. There were some pictures taken at the time, which I I never did know where they ended up. I'd have to dig them down one day because unfortunately both my parents are gone and there are pictures of us stood there with Sir Robin Knox Johnston and I never know who it was that took those pictures. So, I think it was maybe on edition, or it was a local radio. No, it wouldn't be a radio show, would it? Yeah, the the radio show took all the pictures. The local TV show took all these pictures. But I should dig those out one day because there are some lovely pictures And my dad, uh, who was still very ill, but um, got himself together and got brought out to the boat by uh, by Rib, and he then came in with me, sailed in with me, and and came alongside with me and showered me champagne, all that kind of stuff. And it was really. Really nice day. It was, it was a fantastic end to it. And I know when they did the documentary, there was a documentary of this thing called um, Hell on High Water, which I can't find any like mention of or recorded history of now. It went out on Star Sports and ESPN and all sorts for a couple of years when I live in Hong Kong, which was awesome because it was a real expose of the depth of my soul sort of thing. And uh, <laughs> I'd be phoning up people like at the sail loft. They're like, hey, you're on the TV. I'm like, uh, okay. Like, yeah, yeah, you're just off in New Zealand. I'm like, oh no, what was I doing? What was I saying? But that documentary, at the end of it, I remember what they did is because a lot of it was kind of focused on me just because I put a lot of video in. They gave us like fifteen hours worth of tapes to video on, and I just filled it up and gave it them back. but that seemed to be I was the only one doing that, so I ended up a lot of my footage was in it and at the end, they just had me kind of walk up the gangplank with my bag on my shoulder, my Henry Lloyd bag, uh, which I seem to have had forever for all these trips and walk off into the crowd and just kind of get lost in the crowd and that's kind of the feeling like when you get to the end of something like that like you've accomplished something huge there is this kind of like just move back to whatever you were doing before like reality or unreality or whatever you want to call it but it's just this Go back to whatever you're doing now, and that's very much how I felt. And it was uh, it was a tricky process after that. It was a tricky process to get my head around it. And I've still got. I think maybe that's another podcast I'll do, like starting over five years afterwards to dig down into what I did to myself and how I how I developed, how I broke myself, how I fixed myself, how I remain broken, how I remain uh, empowered by it. Is is a I think that's as much value as actually the event itself the event is cool i can tell the story and i've never told the story in this kind of detail so i'm really enjoying the fact that i've been able to share this with you i've got so many comments back from people and People give me their ideas on things, and I love that discourse. But I probably won't ever tell the story like this again, (laughs) because if anybody asks, I'll just say, well, listen to the podcast. But the effects of that time live on in me. And for, you know, some of it's negative, some of it's positive. But trying to understand that now is something that's very much uppermost in my mind. That's why, in a way, I've been doing this, because as I stand here now at my desk recording this podcast... Over to my right is another desk which I've set up because I'm schizophrenic and I need to <laughs> I need to kind of have things in different places so I can deal with them with two different hats on. And that desk is everything to do with going around the world again, which I'm going to do this November. And I want to make sure that when I go this time, I really enjoy it, like I really get everything from it, because I can remember lots and lots of times out on the water, Sailing Spartan and really loving it, feeling very, very blessed to be in that situation and very, very lucky and very, very much at the edge, like really living life, like really tasting it in everything I was doing. And then I can remember a lot of other times where I was very, very unhappy. And I think the boat didn't do that. The waves didn't do that. The sea didn't do that. The being on my own didn't do that. None of that. Fixing things, illness, all that stuff, no problem. Um, the thing that was a problem was stuff I brought on board, my own demons in my own luggage. And so when I go next time, this podcast and the interaction I've had with you guys is part of the process of unpacking this all, working out what's good, working out what's bad, and then making a very strong decision to throw away all the parts that are no good for me. And I remember learning this, Um, in the middle of the Atlantic with my good friend, Al Jones, and with um, Michelle, who was uh, just the most fantastic crew member who I I came to know as a friend and came to know as uh, as, as an inspiration to me, an older gentleman who'd lost his wife. I worked with him when I was about four years later when I was in Canada, and his wife had passed away in difficult circumstances, and we ended up talking a lot. I'd just lost my dad. I'd been through all the stuff with the, uh, the, the round the world stuff and how it left me feeling. And with Al and with Michelle, he ended up writing down everything that he felt about his wife and the problems they'd had and the situation and the things that happened around her death and how he loved her and the family. And he wrote it all down in this big kaleidoscope of all of these things, both good and bad. But she was gone. And he had to make a decision with like how to move forward. So he ripped up all of the bad things and he threw them in the ocean. He decided just to remember it in the most positive light so he could energize himself and move forward with his life and smile when he remembered and not have to deal with it. And it's a bit like that film, The Life of Pi. Uh, You know, you can choose how to look back on things. And there were hard times, there were good times, there were tears, there was joy, there was all sorts of things. But as I move forward now to go and do it again, I have to make a physical decision like, okay, I'm just gonna remember this in the way that I wanna remember it. And then I'm gonna like, get all the rest of the stuff and just rip it up, not necessarily physically, but rip it up in my mind and then just get on with it. I want to enjoy it. I want to have fun with it. I want to go and do what I'm doing and I don't want to have the issue of um, regretting it afterwards. I don't want to be sat in a hotel room looking at the boat parked in a marina having done it and gone, what did I do that for? I want to go into it knowing what I'm getting out of it and I want to every day enjoy it. It's going to be 120 days around the world if I beat the record and, you know, every day could be fantastic i read that philippe monet who had the record in 2000 described it as a, his record around the world was 155 days he described it as 155 days in hell like i'm not signing up for that but then i read the story from jean-luc vanden Heed, and he's like i had a fantastic time about 10 difficult days and i really enjoyed the rest of it. it's like okay that's what i want to do <laughs> that's how i want it to go so i appreciate uh being able to tell the story and share it with you and uh uh, there, I met. Like I wrote a book about this like ten years ago, and I have actually experimented with reading some of the chapters uh, or parts of the chapters as podcasts. I'm not sure how I feel about that. It was a book which had a lot of personal stuff in and the practical stuff of sailing around the world, and then. I didn't feel right about kind of publishing that. I had a deal with um, McGraw-Hill, but I didn't feel right about it. It didn't feel like a good thing. But I've since gone back and looked at the manuscript, which is like three inches thick, like 100,000 words, like I should do something with it. And I've realized that in there is a story of biting off more than you can chew and then just learning to chew real hard. So maybe there's a way of unpacking that and um, and, and sharing that with people and sharing the fact that we're all ordinary people, but if we focus our mind into one special moment, one special time, we can achieve incredible things. Okay, well, we're up on our hour and 15, hour and 20 here, which I try and keep these two. Any comments, as always, any questions, any things that you want to include in the podcast? Um, I'm kind of off the rails I set for myself now. I wanted to get 17 podcasts out uh, by the 1st of June. 17 is an important number in the algorithm that runs uh apple Podcasts, because it won't suggest your podcast to many people unless you've got a minimum of 17 so i always thought that's kind of a number i can see that um, we've now passed the point of three and a half thousand downloads so thank you very much to everybody that's downloaded and those who are following and um it's it's very interesting for me whilst there's someone said to me the other day well you're only talking to about 200 people You know, did it it feel okay? It's like talking to 200 people is awesome, particularly when they write back to me and we're doing the Patreon thing together and we're on YouTube. Like, I love it. And somebody else who had a bit more knowledge pointed out if you've got 200 people that are listening or 200,000 people that are listening, it's still exactly the same. It's still the microphone and you talking and what you're doing and enjoy it whilst you can just do whatever you want with it and not too many people will be uh, irritated if you change tracks. So I've got some good suggestions in from people asking about uh, sales and sail technology and um, winglets and aerodynamics and that kind of stuff. I am a little nervous to go off down subject matters, which are too... Sciencey because it can end up being a bit dry, uh but you know, sure like if you request it i 'll do it in no a problem at all, and I think we've got we 've got a good little format here where we can kind of talk about anything that 's what we 've done so far so yeah it 's uh coming up to midday we have a new problem here in the barn, and that is now cooking hot, <laughs> so that 's a new one I think i've decided that uh, this barn is testing me. It's like, okay, I'm going to freeze you, then I'm going to boil you. And if you survive all of that, like I'm outside fixing the barn. I'm going to get up on the roof later today and do some stuff at work up there. Like this barn should know that I'm on its side. But yeah, it, now the problem is that I'm uh, stood here in shorts and a t-shirt. I'm still too hot. So <laughs> wherever you are and whatever you're doing, I hope that you are safe and sound and keeping yourself and those around you equally safe and equally sound And I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers.